Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, history friends. Thanks so much for listening to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Before this episode starts, I just wanted to leave you with apparently a very, very echoey message because I'm recording this little bit in my kitchen. But yeah. Matter of Honour, Britain in the First World War, the first book I ever had published, is now out in its second edition. After purchasing back the rights from my old publisher, I now basically have all the rights to it and make all the money from it. So the link in the description will be below if you want to find out how the Code of Honour played a role in persuading the British government to declare war on Germany on the 4th of August 1914. It's a story that's been told many, many times, but with that added element of honour in there, it makes it all the more interesting. Plus, I won an award for it for my dissertation in my Master's, so hey, I must have been onto something, right? You may be asking, well, Zach, that's all well and good. The ebook and paperback might be there, and that's really nice, but what about the audiobook? I'm here for audio. Well, it's funny you should ask about the audio version, History Friend. I'm currently working on that very edition at this very moment, and I've even rigged up a very special studio in my shower, don't ask, to make that happen. It seems to be going well enough, and I'm fairly happy you'll appreciate it. But all this talk of audiobooks leads me to something a little bit more somber and something which will probably make you feel a little bit icky as well. You see, when we talk about Audible, well, what comes to your mind? A storefront where you can buy audiobooks. And it's great if you're a customer. But if you're a producer of these audiobooks, what you might not be aware of is that you really get shafted. I'm talking like Amazon keeping up to 87% of the royalties from the audiobook that you put on that store. I know people are set in their ways, largely because of Amazon's monopoly, but when I found out this information, I really, it ruined my day because I have all these plans for how I'm gonna make audiobooks in the future. And long story short, they seem to be in jeopardy now, at least until things changed. But guess what I did? Instead of just accepting how crap this whole arrangement was, I decided to do something about it. And like all modern men, I posted an angry but informative thread on Twitter. And lo and behold, for the first time in my entire life, I went viral with the hashtag AudibleGate, which is what it's officially called because Audible's been in trouble before with the community for its really bad returns policies, which have kind of been fixed, and now it's on to this scandal over royalties. Basically, the advertised royalties, when you sign up to partner with Audible, are not even what you get. Rather than 25% for being non-exclusive to Audible, or 40% for being exclusive, you get something more along the lines of 13% for being non-exclusive, and 21% 
for being exclusive. Yeah, it's disgusting. And the reason why I'm telling you now is because you, like me, last week, probably have absolutely no idea about all this and the real scandal that's underway within the inner workings of Audible. You might be wondering how they managed to do that and go against our contracts in the first place. Well, the explanation, it's going to take more than me explaining to you here in this pre-episode bit. But if you would like to learn more about Audiblegate and if you would like to check out that Twitter thread which has been seen by... Let me just check this here. Nearly 800,000 people. Yeah, I know. Nearly 800,000 people. I'm trying to get it to a million. But if you would like to read that Twitter thread and find out for yourselves just how bad the situation with Audible has gotten, then I'll leave a link for that in the description too. Those are two little bits of info that I really wanted to make you aware of, guys. Matter of Honor is out now and you can get it. And Audible Gate is a real thing and people are kind of upset, but also angry. There is even a group called Audible Gate taking actual legal action and they've made Amazon back down on their returns policy before. So here's hoping we'll have success again and you can contribute to that fund in the link within the Twitter thread. I know it's a bit of a longer intro than normal, guys. I really, really appreciate you sticking around and I really appreciate you checking out a matter of honor. Now let's get into the episode. Thanks and enjoy. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Felicity Guard. Felicity was hired to write Gustavus's address to the Reichsrad in May 1630. It went down really well. You might say it was a felicitous appointment. Sorry. This of course is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, then please head on over to Patreon. More on that later, but for now... Enjoy episode 51 of the 30 Years' War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all to the 30 Years' War. So last time we concluded our examination of Swedish preparations prior to entering the 30 Years' War. It was, as we learned, a multi-layered process. It involved a great deal of mediation to end the war with Poland, and then a lot of fortunate diplomacy to engineer a war between Poland and Russia, which would secure the Swedish flank while it invaded Germany. Amidst this activity, we learned that, far from a pawn in Swedish schemes, the foreign policy of the Tsar and his father was largely responsible for what transpired because the Russians were the ones that crafted an anti-Habsburg coalition that could include Sweden, just in time for Sweden to get what it wanted in Germany. It was an incredibly fortunate series of events for Gustavus Adolphus. He was, to use that cliché, in the right place at the right time. But now came the test. Good fortune was one thing, but Gustavus was going to need more than good fortune if he wanted to win in Germany. In this episode, then, we examine that critical year of 1630. How did Gustavus justify his actions? What did he hope to gain from intervention? And how did the first few months transpire? Without any further ado, let's just get into this. I will now take you to the 19th of May, 1630, where the Swedish king was making an important speech before his estates. As it is bound to occur according to his word, that the jar carries water on the farm until at last it is broken, so be it with me ultimately. How often have I been in the midst of blood and danger in the cause of our Swedish kingdom, and yet through God's mercy, even though injured, have been allowed to return? Now I must shed blood one last time, so before I leave you, 
I commend you, my Swedish subjects, to the protection of Almighty God, and desire that we will meet again in his heavenly kingdom. This was the King of Sweden's famous address before the three estates of his kingdom on the 19th of May 1630, a mere month before he left, never to return. He addressed the peasants, clergy, and burghers in return, saying first to the burghers, or merchants, that he wished that your little cabins may become great houses of stone, your little boats, great ships, and merchantmen, and that the oil in your crews fail not. To the peasants, he declared, My wish for them is that their meadows be green with grass, their fields bare a hundredfold, so that their barns may be full, and that they may so increase and multiply in all plenteousness, that they may gladly and without sighing perform the duties and obligations that lie upon them. Clergy were roused to remember that they possessed significant power to turn and twist the hearts of men, and were encouraged to stick to church doctrine, guarding against the sins of pride as they did so. It was an impressive example which Gustavus Adolphus set for his people, one of courage, tenacity, and conviction. Yet those present at the Swedish Reichsrat cannot have failed to imagine the fate of another northern monarch who had left his kingdom with similar high hopes five years earlier. Gustavus Adolphus was not King Christian IV of Denmark, but in 1630 there was no way to guarantee that when it came to the brutal finality of battle, Gustavus's fortunes would not be equally ruined. And Gustavus knew he was taking a risk. He was taking a risk that he could defeat the experienced and undefeated Count Tilly, the commander of Catholic League forces, who had been left to try and gather together the remaining forces in the Empire, following Wallenstein's dismissal, which came in August, a few months after Gustavus was doing all of this politicking. Gustavus was taking a risk that his kingdom would be able to weather the storm, and that Sweden's nobility would not turn on him, as Denmark's nobility had turned on Christian IV. Gustavus was also taking an immense risk when he bargained that the Protestant German princes would support him against their emperor. Per that latter point, Gustavus knew that he required a manifesto which would help him to explain and legitimise his actions to those same German princes. It was a long to-do list, but Gustavus had demonstrated that he was not above diplomatic approaches either. Throughout April and May 1630, imperial envoys had visited Danzig and talked with the Danish king's representatives who hoped to mediate a settlement. It was there that we glimpse Gustavus's pressing concern, that of security. The Swedish Chancellor, Axel Oxenstierna, who we'll be hearing a lot of in future episodes, captured this in a draft letter to the delegates at Danzig on the 12th of May 1630, a full week before the king's emotive appeal to his three estates. Oxenstierna wrote, The king is well satisfied with the instructions as a whole, but notices that the Chancellor has omitted to bear in mind the most important point of all, namely security. The Chancellor is, accordingly, to take care that the King is not engaged to quit Stralsund or any other place which he may be able to acquire until all the conditions of peace are carried out by the Imperialists, their armies entirely withdraw from the Saxon circles, and everything, especially the coastlands, restored to a secure and peaceable condition. These conditions for the restoration of the coastlands may appear relatively innocent, but this definition of coastlands included the Duchy of Mecklenburg. Since this duchy was in the possession of Wallenstein, that request was unacceptable, 
as was the notion of Sweden remaining in control of Stralsund, that city which had defied Wallenstein in 1628. Gustavus knew that the emperor would never accept these demands, but they had not come from nowhere. The minutes of a Swedish council debate from the 4th of May 1630 demonstrate that both Gustavus and his subjects weighed up the risks involved in taking the emperor at his word or retaining their gains at Stralsund as insurance against Emperor Ferdinand's bad faith. The minutes read like a kind of watershed moment where both the king and his councillors accepted that conflict was the only course. One figure thought that the question was settled by the terms of our treaty with Stralsund, since they laid it down that the king is to withdraw his garrison as soon as the emperor restores the original state of affairs in Mecklenburg. The king said our basic war aim is security, and if the emperor will grant the terms we have proposed, that would be a sufficient guarantee. But if the king were then to continue his occupation of Stralsund, it would look as though he sought to enlarge his dominions. Others denied this would be an adequate guarantee of safety, for if our security is to be assured, it must be under our own control, and not in the discretion of the enemy. For there can be no safety if we hand back any position which we cannot immediately retake. The king made the point that it would be iniquitous to deprive the Duke of Pomerania and Mecklenburg of their hereditary rights for the sake of getting an agreement with the emperor. The negotiations went nowhere, and few should have been surprised, since the Swedish king neglected even to send delegates to Danzig to take part. Gustavus had resolved to make war against the emperor for some time, but he had delayed this decision until it suited him. Now that he was freed from his Polish war, and in possession of a landing pad in Stralsund, which Sweden's council had been persuaded to accept as a Swedish fief for life that same month, Gustavus was tasked with crafting a manifesto which would justify his actions in Europe. The following manifesto was released across the continent in June 1630, but it should not be seen as a necessarily true reflection of the Swedish king's intentions. Rather, this was propaganda, designed to justify Gustavus's actions and to shield his policy from criticism. That said, we should not ignore its extensive examination of the perceived wrongs which the king declared he had endured at the emperor's hands, even if the opening paragraph of the manifesto was not exactly modest. It read, When we come to the business of war, the first question to be asked is whether it be just or not. This is the case at present with respect to that which the king of Sweden has undertaken anew, who may very justly be called great, both for his courage and valour, and for his power, strength, and endeavours, and also for all his high and mighty designs and actions, truly worthy of a great king. Having for these last years, in order to support and encourage his friends, made war successfully against the Muscovites and Polanders, and then dexterously made peace, still for his glory and notable advantage, and some time ago, in a very short time, brought his army into the harbours of the Baltic Sea, having made himself master of all Pomerania, and fortified the places within his conquest, not to extend his limits and enlarge his bounds, but to deliver his relations and friends from oppression, not by the devastation of countries and cities, but at his own charges and expense, and at the hazard of his own person, as appears by the public accounts, which has spread his fame throughout the whole universe. After establishing Gustavus's majesty for all to see, the manifesto proclaimed that the Spaniards and the House of Austria have always been intent on a universal monarchy, and noted that 
If this brave and generous northern prince had not bestirred himself and opposed that torrent, she had pushed her ambition and arms to the most distant kingdoms and provinces. More specific qualms over Ferdinand's behaviour were also mentioned. Gustavus's letters to Bethlen Gabor, the prince of Transylvania, were brought up, since Ferdinand's agents had intercepted these in the past, and after they had been opened and false glosses put upon them, the manifesto said, Gustavus's reputation was rendered odious everywhere. The most justifiable gripe which Gustavus had concerned Wallenstein's consistent and escalating interference in the Swedish war with Poland. Stralsund was mentioned as well, a city which Gustavus could not ignore without wounding his honour and conscience. Gustavus's agents were insulted by their imperial counterparts when they attempted to participate in the Treaty of Lübeck negotiations, the peace between Denmark and the Emperor, an unworthy and dishonourable treatment which was held and judged by all nations a sufficient cause of rupture and of requiring satisfaction by arms. The magnanimous King of Sweden resisted this urge, though, only to be faced with the highest piece of injustice, the invasion of Prussia and the concentrated military intervention into his Polish war by the imperial commander and subordinate of Wallenstein, Hans-Georg von Arnhem. Arnhem led his contingent against the Swedes, and, with great diligence, Arnhem had harassed that army of the King of Sweden in Prussia during the whole summer, whereby he had doubtless suffered the entire ruin of his estates, friends and allies, if God, who was the protector of righteous causes and the preserver of his innocence, had not taken in his own hand the defence of his cause, having made his enemies justly suffer the evils which they had unjustly prepared and designed against him. As we know, Gustavus was defeated by the combined Polish imperial army, and his forces were compelled to retreat from the siege of Danzig. In fact, Wallenstein had provided some 12,000 men to aid the Polish king, a not insignificant contribution which may well have turned the tide of the entire Danzig campaign. The defeat probably stung all the more, but still it was insisted that the Swedish king desired peace, but that the enemy had no such intention, considering the frauds and tricks they made use of formerly. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. After this long list of grievances which Gustavus had suffered at the Emperor's hands, the question was put plain to the reader of this manifesto. 
Seeing all this, is there any person of understanding and sense, not prepossessed with passion and private interest, that can deny, both by divine and human laws and by the very instinct of nature, it is lawful to make use of the means which God puts in our hands to resent and avenge ourselves for so sensible an injury, especially for kings and sovereign princes, particularly when their honour and person, the safety of their states, and the good of their subjects are concerned, when all appearance of honour and satisfaction is denied them, is there anyone, I say, that can blame the most serene king of Sweden for endeavouring by his arms to defend his subjects and friends from such an oppression? Just in case there existed individuals who might object to Gustavus's motives and justifications, the Swedish government ensured that the 23 editions and five languages of their manifesto changed with the times and the recipient. It was essential that Gustavus's message be as widely disseminated and as sympathetic as possible to an exhausted Germany and a distracted Europe. Indeed, the wars in the Netherlands and in Italy were more than enough to occupy contemporary attentions, not to mention Habsburg resources. Incredible though it may seem now, by the early summer of 1630, Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II was not watching Gustavus's every move, and neither was he considering the danger the Swedish king posed to Germany. Instead, he was focused on the future of his dynasty. The imperial diet at Regensburg was Ferdinand's main concern in 1630, as he sought the confirmation of his son as heir and the declaration of war against the Dutch by the German princes. Ferdinand met resistance and frustration from those assembled at Regensburg. They were frustrated with the behaviour of Wallenstein, and some were troubled by the Emperor's actions in North Italy, which seemed to demonstrate that Ferdinand would act independently wherever he liked. 20,000 of Wallenstein's men had been sent to prop up the Spanish in Mantua, and the Emperor now demanded more men to aid Madrid in its campaign against the Dutch. The Protestant electors were conspicuous in their absence from Regensburg, and the shadow left by the Edict of Restitution was impossible to ignore. Convening on the 3rd of July, the Diet of Regensburg was still a vibrant affair, with representatives from all over Europe in attendance. More troubling than what was discussed, of course, was what was not discussed. Gustavus Adolphus landed in Germany on the island of Usedom off of Pomerania just three days after these folks had gathered. The line in the north had slipped through the back door of the empire, which Ferdinand's miscalculations had left ajar. As Gustavus knew, though, preparing for war with the emperor and landing in Germany was only half the battle. They would now have to carry the war which he had longed for to a successful conclusion, and for that, he urgently needed allies. One of the gravest initial challenges Gustavus faced in this regard was the counter-argument which the emperor provided to his manifesto. While reduced merely to a war of words at this stage, this confrontation was nonetheless important because it could blunt the Swedish mission before it had even truly launched. With the exception of the dispossessed Dukes of Mecklenburg and the city of Stralsund, Gustavus had no German allies to call upon. His relationship with the French can be viewed as both sides playing hard to get, as each attempted to drive a hard bargain to get what they wanted, and only in 1631 would this process reach its conclusion. It was essential for Gustavus's cause that he continued to be seen as the king waging a just war against the emperor's designs, and yet within that conflict, Gustavus could not declare himself as the saviour of the Protestants, since this might alienate the French and repel those Protestant German leaders who had yet to be tempted away from Ferdinand's orbit. 
Gustavus would thus have to tread carefully and to respond to the emperor's challenges publicly as they appeared. The first challenge did not take long to arrive. On the 18th of August, the imperial reply to the Swedish king's manifesto was sent, wherein the emperor said, We wish to inform you we have reliable reports that you have collected a large army of horse and foot throughout this year and have landed on islands belonging to the Holy Empire and are now on its soil and have seized some prominent places, castles and towns in the Duchy of Pomerania and levied tolls that lie within our jurisdiction and are resolved on further acts hostile to the empire. Ferdinand then understated his past behaviour somewhat when he noted, We know that we and the empire have never harmed you in the slightest throughout our difficult reign, nor caused any misunderstanding that might give grounds for such open hostilities. We are completely baffled why you have effectively begun open war over some difficulties regarding the town of Stralsund that lies on our and the empire's soil and concern its laws and justice especially as we feel that such hostilities and unnecessary bloodshed can easily be avoided through the mediation suggested and now obligingly undertaken by the King of Denmark. Unlike you, we have indicated our desire for this and have instructed and dispatched our envoys for the talks. Despite what he said here, Ferdinand cannot have been ignorant to the negative impression which policies like the Baltic design, the Edict of Restitution and his intervention in Sweden's Polish war must have made on Gustavus Adolphus. To say that he was baffled was something of a stretch, but Ferdinand did attempt to explain away past actions in the Baltic. We assure you that our military preparations on the Baltic and elsewhere were never, nor are, intended to give you offence. On the contrary, we wish to remain good neighbours with the Kingdom of Sweden, and like to continue so, provided you do not give further cause, otherwise, and stop this unnecessary war. Predictably enough, if Gustavus neglected to evacuate his men from Pomerania, which he had occupied from late July, then Ferdinand declared he would be forced to take extreme measures, together with the loyal electors and estates of the empire, before adding, though we hope it will not come to this. Ferdinand did make one commendable point, though, his claim that he would have at least expected, according to international law, that you would have sent some prior denunciation, citing an ostensible pretext or legal cause, according to your view, prior to this hostile invasion. This indicated that, in contravention to the accepted norms of international law, Gustavus Adolphus had invaded, but he hadn't declared war. These principles of international law had only been established relatively recently, with the writings of Thomas Aquinas and Hugo Grotius in the preceding years. For the sake of legitimacy, though, it was vital that the Swedish king adhere to these accepted norms, and it would have been the antithesis of his character to simply ignore the genuine Habsburg threat which had brought Wallenstein to the edge of the Baltic. Of course, in the emperor's mind, the Swedish king waged an undeclared war of disputed justice without having searched for a peaceful way out of his difficulties first. Gustavus did not desire to wage war merely to seek redress for his grievances, he also aimed to strike at the Habsburgs to prevent them from surging forward to the Baltic again. We have seen before that Gustavus landed in Germany just at the moment when Wallenstein's command was nearing his end and his army was about to be reduced. The Habsburg scheme for monopolising the Baltic with Polish cooperation had manifestly failed. 
and the hostility which the Edict of Restitution engendered among the northern Protestants suggested that Ferdinand would have an uphill battle ahead of him if he wished to continually guarantee his son's succession. It could thus be argued, therefore, that the period of most potent danger for the King of Sweden had passed, especially since he was able to defend himself without fear of Polish betrayal. Thus, Gustavus would wage war not due to the immediate danger which the Habsburgs posed, but to prevent them from posing such danger ever again. He would attack the nucleus of Habsburg strength, and by doing so, emasculate the emperor and force Ferdinand to roll back the ominous expansion of his authority. Gustavus would have known that his quest for preemptive war was supported by the great thinkers of the age. A reader of Hugo Grotius, the Swedish king was certainly aware of the arguments of Amrecio Gentili, author of On the Laws of War and Peace, from 1589, and Sir Francis Bacon, famed English philosopher and scientist. For his part, Gentili had remarked on the inherent justness of a preemptive war, saying, We ought not to wait for violence to be offered us, if it is safer to meet it halfway. No one ought to expose himself to danger. A defence is just, which anticipates dangers that are already mediated and prepared, and also those which are not mediated, but are probable and possible. Sir Francis Bacon had also weighed in on the debate, stating, I shall make it plain that war preventative upon just fears are true defensives, as well as upon actual invasions. And while Bacon added that fear is not justified, out of umbrages, light jealousies, apprehensions, but only out of clear foresight of imminent danger. Bacon insisted at the same time that the overgrowing greatness of another state was sufficient ground for offensive war. Hugo Grotius took issue with this presentation of a preemptive war as inherently just, but he admitted that waiting for one's enemy to strike the first blow was unrealistic and akin to suicide when their intentions had been apparent from the beginning. These elastic conclusions enabled Gustavus to justify intervention to his court, and even to reason that Sweden had been in a state of public war with the emperor since 1628. But to justify his actions to Germany with this logic was considered too risky. And so he went forth to carry war into the empire, wrote the historian A.W. Ward, adding prophetically, not indeed unaware of the possibility that success might carry him beyond the achievement of his immediate end, or insensible, as his great councillor Oxenstierna afterwards phrased it, of the fundamental importance of momenta temporum, seasons, but nevertheless intent upon a well-defined purpose from which no obstacle would cause him to swerve. The decision was not made lightly, and to Gustavus the venture was wholly necessary, whether it was ambition, revenge, security or religion that drove him forward, the Swedish king was careful to present his intervention in terms that his potential allies would understand. He would proclaim that he had been forced to intervene due to the cruelties inflicted upon the German princes. He was the fearless ruler come to liberate them from the yoke of tyranny and oppression. Gustavus's efforts to legitimise his intervention in Germany were thus multi-layered. It involved, first, the publication of a manifesto outlining all the wrongs which the king had suffered at the hands of the Habsburgs. Second, the preparation of the legalistic ground so that both his subjects and potential allies could be assured that his actions conformed with established international law. And third, he had to present a moral narrative within which he was the hero, the salvation of the German people and the defender of the imperial constitution. 
Now that we've examined the rhetorical devices which Gustavus used, let us see now how these exercises gelled with the political aims of the Swedish king and what he actually hoped to gain by landing in Germany. While Gustavus had fought long, challenging wars before, the war against the forces of the emperor represented a first for him. The enemy that he knew was led by Polish hetmans and nobles, awash with heavy cavalry and often punctuated by petty rivalries and jealousies, which made the Commonwealth's military efforts less cohesive at times. By contrast, although Ferdinand's authority took a beating at the meeting of Regensburg, there was no question of who was in charge. There was also no intention among the Protestant princes of the north to throw off the emperor's yoke and thereby violate the imperial constitution, as Gustavus so badly wanted and needed them to do. Without the military and political support of Saxony and Brandenburg, Gustavus's policy could not be vindicated and he would always be seen as the outsider. Even with 29,000 troops by November 1630, a number which included the Swedish garrison of Stralsund, Gustavus faced a considerable military challenge from the emperor. The total spread of imperial troops across Italy and Germany brought the number, at Ferdinand's technical control, to 80,000 men. This was smaller than the numbers under Wallenstein, but it was still nearly three times the size of Gustavus's force. If the Imperials under Count Tilly could combine their forces and march confidently towards Pomerania without much haste, then a repeat of the 1626 Battle of Luther, where the King of Denmark was shattered, would surely be on the cards. How did Gustavus plan to rectify this situation? Above all, he desperately required allies from Germany and France. As for the military strategic plan, the Swedish king seemed more than content to hunker down in northern Germany for the remainder of the year. To march out of this pocket would surely have been suicide, and in fact it's entirely possible that Gustavus may have become lost. He only possessed detailed maps up to the Saxon borders. Southern Germany, as it was, was largely a mystery to him. We should also bear in mind Swedish military prowess was considerable, and the king's genius and knack for military innovation in musketry and artillery should not be underrated. But this only went so far. Certainly, Gustavus encouraged legends about his men, and especially the Finnish cavalry, who always rode beside him, that his men did not feel the cold, that they could not break during battle, and that the Laplanders rode reindeer into combat. These were all myths which Gustavus was eager to perpetuate, but he also invested in some more honest means of improving his army's fortunes as well. The Swedish army was an example of combined arms, with the infantry, cavalry and artillery working in tandem according to a prearranged and consistently practiced drill. Gustavus knew that his men had great potential and could net him spectacular victories, but he also knew this well-oiled machine was not invincible. The most recent encounter of his army had been the defeat at the Battle of Honigfeld against a combined Polish imperial force. It was apparent from the steps which Gustavus had taken that his allies and his objectives would change with the circumstances. Therefore, 1631 was clearly going to be a year of great importance for his campaign. Either it would provide him with the opportunities required to seize victory, or he would be forced to withdraw from Germany ignominiously without having achieved anything or he would suffer the same fate as his Danish peer, shattered and reduced, and sent back home. With much of Pomerania carved out for his soldiers, and the campaigning system effectively at an end by the time the Regensburg meeting wound up, Gustavus's aims for the new year were clear, and are outlined by the historian Michael Roberts, who wrote, 
the political and religious safety of Sweden required that the imperialists and leaguers be pushed back as far into Germany as possible and somehow or other be prevented from returning, that at least in the two Saxon circles the territorial arrangements revert to those of 1618, that no great power, and especially no great power of a hostile religion, be suffered to control the invasion ports of Pomerania and Mecklenburg. To achieve these aims, though, Gustavus would have to turn his attention towards two major aims in 1631. First, he would have to break out of Pomerania and find some way to leverage his position in Germany to recruit Protestants or anti-Habsburg figures to his side. Second, Gustavus would have to fight a conclusive battle against the Habsburg's favourite generalissimo, Count Tilly, if he was ever going to demonstrate his utility to those that were on the fence. These political aims made good strategic sense and were in many respects quite limited. Little could either Gustavus Adolphus or the Holy Roman Emperor have imagined what 1631 would bring. In the next episode, we'll examine the developing situation in the Empire as 1631 dawned. Having spent several months in Pomerania, Gustavus was understandably eager to act, but he had to tread carefully if he was to preserve his reputation and strength. Gustavus had watched his Danish neighbours sacrifice both of these things in a single day, and he did not intend to follow Christian IV's example. The story of how Gustavus achieved his coup is as incredible as the coup itself, so I hope you'll join me next time as we examine it. Until next time, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been episode 51 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you keep an eye out for my new version, the second edition of A Matter of Honour. Thanks again, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.